Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. Uh, we are starting a new message series this weekend at all of our campuses. Uh, all year long, it's 12 books in 12 months, and so this is our second book, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is really more of a letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church he helped get started in the city of Corinth. Uh, last week, we ended the message series on the book of Acts, and we ended with Paul in the city of Corinth, and we were told he stayed there for about a year and a half talking to people about Jesus and getting a church started. And so now, as he has left Corinth and he's going all over the Roman Empire starting other churches in other cities, he will write letters back to the churches that he had got started. Because remember, there just aren't any churches at this point. Nobody knows what's the church supposed to do, what is the church not supposed to do. And because they don't know what they're doing, a lot of people are getting hurt. Uh, the title of the message today is, What You Don't Know Can Hurt You. Uh, what you don't know can hurt you, and Paul's trying to make a difference in, in terms of that idea throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. The clip we watched is from a movie called The Bucket List, uh, Morgan Freeman's character Carter. He's an auto mechanic, and he's really smart. He can answer trivia questions and uh, Jeopardy questions and that sort of thing, but, but more than just smart in terms of information, he's a very wise man as it relates to life. He has a lot of wisdom about life, the kind of wisdom that says maybe it's not all that wise to eat a whole lot of food when you've just started chemotherapy. What you don't know can hurt you. I wonder what it is you don't know that's hurting you. I wonder what it is you don't know that is hurting you. Later on in the film, they're having a conversation Carter and Edward, they're sharing this room together for several months as they've been diagnosed with uh, terminal illness and they're trying to look for maybe some experimental treatments to prolong their life and they develop a relationship and part of what they do is they share their stories. How did they end up where they are? And so Carter is talking about his dream always was to be a history professor uh, at a university. So he went to college, uh, met a girl, and within a couple of uh, months, uh, she was pregnant, so he dropped out, took the first job that came along, and in, in one scene, he's kind of just, I don't know, eyes with this faraway look as he says, 45 years goes by real fast. 45 years goes by real fast. We don't celebrate half birthdays at our house, but somebody must have told our daughter Saffron about half birthdays because all January she's been super excited and fixated on her half birthday, which was Thursday, January 31st. So I woke up on Thursday morning, not to the news that the kids were excited that school had been canceled because it was so dang cold. No, I woke up with Saffron jumping up and down on our bed. It's my half birthday. It's my half birthday. When will the guests be arriving, she said. <laughs> so we had to inform her, you know, it's a little cold out and there's no school, so we're not going to actually have people come over to the house. But if you want to, you can invite your brothers and sisters to your half birthday party. So that's what she did. Got out paper and envelopes and wrote invitations for her brothers and sisters to come, I know, to her half birthday party. And uh, then she and I sat down to make a list of how do we want to decorate for it and what kind of food do we need to get particularly what kind of ice cream, which is cotton candy, obviously. And all day long, she just was filled with life because she was turning seven and a half. <laughs> now, birthdays change the older we get, don't they? Uh, and I suppose it makes sense in a lot of different ways because, like, you know, when you turn 10, it's double digits for the first time. That's pretty awesome. And 13, now you're a teenager. 14, you get your permit. 16, you get your driver's license. 18, you can vote. 21, you can do other things. But after that, I mean, what do you, 
Every five years, maybe. Every 10 years, when, when do you celebrate? Actually, the older we get, our birthdays become different kind of half birthdays, don't they? 32, I've been driving for half of my life. And 36, I've lived away from mom and dad for half of my life. At one of my wife's recent birthdays, I woke her up and said, congratulations, honey, your life is half over. And she <laughs> wasn't really excited about that. I was like, I don't know. Birthdays. I'll be turning uh, 47 two weeks from today. That's a weird number, isn't it? 47? It's a prime number for starters. It's hard to celebrate prime numbers. But seriously, when's the last time, I think about it, when's the last time you even used the number 47 in any kind of conversation? It's just kind of skip over that one, right? Conventional wisdom says the older you get, the less of a big deal birthdays become. But why is that conventional wisdom? And is it even wise to live? And I, I'm not talking about birthdays at this point and what's the right way to celebrate. I'm talking about life. Why, why is it that a little girl is so excited about her life, she can't wait a full year to celebrate a birthday, but the older we get, we can go years and maybe even decades without stopping, pausing to celebrate. What's that about? And I want you to think about it for a little bit. I got some ideas on this that we'll get into, but while you're thinking about it, one more clip from uh, this movie, The Bucket List. Uh, they're, they're in this uh, room, this hospital room, for quite a while, and they develop this relationship, and they decide to create the bucket list. What are the things that we want to do? How do we want to spend the short amount of time that we have left before we die? And Edward, Jack Nicholson's character, is a corporate billionaire, and so they have the means to do a lot of things on the bucket list. The scene you're about to watch, they're on his private jet heading to Europe to check some things off their bucket list, and the conversation turns to faith. Take a look. It's indescribably beautiful. Love flying over the polar cap. Above the desolation. The stars. It's really one of God's good ones. So you... I think a being of some sort did all this. You don't? You mean, do I believe if I look up in the sky and promise this or that, the biggie will make all this go away? No. And 95% of the people on Earth are wrong. If life has taught me anything, it's that 95% of the people are always wrong. It's called faith. I honestly envy people who have faith. I just can't get my head around it. Maybe your head's in the way. Carter, we've all had hundreds of these discussions and every one of them always hits the same wall. Is there a, a sugar plum fairy or not? And nobody has ever gotten over that wall. So, what do you believe? resist all beliefs. No Big Bang, random universe. We live, we die, and the wheels on the bus go round and round. What if you're wrong? I'd love to be wrong. If I'm wrong, I win. Not sure it works that way. 
something I don't. Mm -mm. I just have faith. I just have faith. Suppose it's not surprising to come to church and hear the pastor encourage you to just have faith. What I hope you noticed in that scene, both characters actually have faith. Uh, Carter has faith in God, uh, some sort of a higher being. But Edward has faith also. And so part of what that scene shows is there's a faith that's good and helpful and a faith that's maybe not so helpful. There's a faith that's healthy, a faith that is unhealthy. And how do we know the difference? A big part of what Paul is doing in this uh, letter of 1 Corinthians, he's helping us see what's the difference between good faith and bad faith. A healthy faith and unhealthy faith. Let's read this verse together. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 is on the screen. Read it out loud with me. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. He doesn't use the language of good faith, bad faith, or unhealthy faith, healthy faith. He uses the language of wise and foolish. Wisdom and foolishness. I mean, if you count up the number of times wise, wisdom, fool, foolish gets used in that chapter, chapter, it's a lot. Seven different times he has this contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And the starting place is the message of the cross. He says the message of the cross is foolishness to a whole bunch of people. Why is this? Well, there's all sorts of reasons why it can appear, can sound foolish. There's a couple that I want to talk about. Number one, the cross shows us a God who suffers and dies. Well, what kind of a God does that? Everybody knows gods don't die. Gods are all-powerful. What kind of a God would become a human being, would be willing to get nailed to a cross and die the excruciatingly painful death of crucifixion? doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. It goes against conventional wisdom. It's foolish from one perspective. And so Paul's trying to help people look at it from a different perspective. Like how amazing might it actually be from the perspective of grace and love that the God of the universe would be willing to travel whatever distance is necessary, would be willing to undergo whatever suffering needs to be endured, all to prove how much God loves us, also that God can save us. And that gets to the second reason that sometimes the message of the cross uh, seems foolish. The cross shows us we cannot save ourselves. We need someone to save us. We need God to save us. We cannot save ourselves. And Maybe at first glance we would be like, well, isn't that good news? Isn't that the most wonderful news, actually, that we cannot save ourselves? We're saved by grace through faith. Our salvation is not a reward for being good enough. So shouldn't that set us free? I don't know what it is about us as human beings, but there's something that makes this a very difficult reality for us to grasp, to wrap our head around. There's something about this idea of salvation being a free gift from God that we just, I don't know. And so instead of receiving the free gift, we work and work and work and we strive and we do all of this religious stuff with the hope that maybe one day God would notice. God would recognize all the good things that we're doing and God would reward us. And so just to be clear, church, that's bad religion and we need to lose it. It's a foolish way of thinking about how faith works, but part of what happens, and it's really kind of subtle and easy for us to slip, we take this foolish way of living and we label it wise. You ever heard the phrase, the Protestant work ethic? 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with hard work, right? But Protestant work ethic, where it actually comes from, is a theology that says, if I'm saved, God is going to bless me. So I'm going to work really, really hard to be successful because then that will be proof that God is blessing me. And it's just wacky. And we do this in all sorts of ways. In Paul's day, he's trying to help people understand, you know, when we take something that's foolish, but we label it as wise, there's something actually evil about that. I heard somebody say one time, the triumph of evil is when we confuse what's good and what's bad. Evil triumphs when we have confusion around what is good and what is bad. So Paul's in this world where kind of the really good thing that people are loving is Greek philosophy. And everybody just kind of knew in Paul's day the highest wisdom was coming from Greek philosophers. And so Paul spends a great deal of time, and you can read about it, arguing, debating. Sometimes the Bible say he's reasoning with different philosophical understandings of life. Uh, There's a group of philosophers called the Epicureans in Paul's day. Their belief is the only thing that is real is the material world, Uh, physical reality. That's all that there's no spiritual reality. There's no supernatural reality. It's only the physical world. And so part of what the Epicureans say, their wisdom is kind of summed up in this phrase, nothing to fear in God. So the Epicureans looked at the religious people around them and thought, well, that's kind of foolish. They seem to be primarily motivated by fear. We talked about that a little bit last week. Fear that God is going to punish them. And so I better be good at religion. I better be obedient. I better be moral. Otherwise, I'm afraid God's going to punish me. And they're like, don't, you don't have to worry about God. No God. Nothing to fear in God. Nothing to feel in death. We live, we die, the wheels on the bus go round and round. That's the Epicureans. And then there's another group of philosophers called the Stoics. For the Stoics, logic and reason is greater than emotion. Emotion is all right, but it's, you know, really where you want to be is this place of logic and rational approach to life. Like the greatest goal of humanity from the Stoic philosophy is, you know, get to a place where you've kind of mastered your emotions, where your inner world is ordered in such a way that Your highs don't get you too high. Your lows don't get you too low. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter what's going on around you, you kind of can maintain this stoic posture. And so Paul, in contrast to those kind of ways of thinking about life in the world, Paul offers the message of the cross, and they think it's foolish. Who is this babbler, they will say in some places? What's he even talking about? So part of what Paul's talking about, he's trying to point out to them the ways in which they label things that are really not so good. They call them good and they call them wise. You think about the conventional wisdom of the Roman Empire. Self-serving power. This is, this is something to strive for. Greed or acquisition, accumulation, all, all about me. This is a good way to live your life. Pride or greatness might be a, a better word to put there. That's like, The goal of life is to get so awesome that people would bow down and almost be worshiping you because you're so great. Or what about if somebody hurts you? What's the wise way to respond when someone hurts you? Seek revenge. Pay them back and hurt them at least as much as they hurt you, but preferably twofold or fivefold or tenfold. And that's the wise way to live. And Paul comes along with the message of the cross, pointing people to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and says, Maybe that's not the wise way to live. Maybe that's a foolish way to live. 
Maybe there's wisdom to be found in sacrificial love, in generosity. That's part of what the message of the cross tells us. There's no greater love than to give your life, to lay your life down for the people around you. How about humility? Whoever wants to be great must become servant of all. And learning to stop seeking revenge and instead to learn how to work through this hard process of forgiveness, that starts to become the wisdom of the world rather than the old way of thinking about life. And in Paul's day and in our day, it's very easy for us to have this confusion around what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. And the church is not exempt from this. It's easy for the church to just kind of skip the message of the cross. Instead, uh, preach a gospel of, I don't know, self-help, self-improvement. You could even say it becomes a gospel of self-salvation. And Paul talks about this in the second letter to the Corinthians. So let's read this out loud together. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, on the screen, read it out loud with me. The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So, I know you didn't have school for two days this week, and so your minds might be, like, shot, but this is a really cool verse, and there's a lot that's packed into this verse, and I'll try to unpack it as best I can, but we'll probably have to come back to this a couple of times throughout the next year, because this is deep, heavy, awesome stuff. Confusing. What's this really talking about? Like, why does God want us to experience sorrow to begin with? Well, one way to think about it is if you have kids and your kids are hurting their friends or hurting their brothers and sisters, at some point you want them to feel sorrow for that. I'm sorry I'm doing this and so that they would stop. So that's, that's really what we're getting at there. But we'll come back to this godly sorrow. Let's start with the end of the verse. Worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. What, what's Paul talking about when he talks about worldly sorrow? He's talking about people who approach life from the standpoint that I am going to save myself. And and here's how this kind of plays itself out. Like, if I just get enough, I don't know, if I do enough emotional work, psychological work, if, if I get enough tools, then I can, you know, become a better version of me. And it'll take time, but slowly over time, if I keep trying hard enough and acquiring all these skills and these tools, I'll stop disappointing the people around me. I'll stop disappointing God, and that'll be a good thing, a better version of me. But notice the focus is it's all about me. It's all about what I have to do. There's no need for the cross, no need for God, no need for grace, no need for the power of the Holy Spirit. I just got to be better. I got to do better. I got to try harder. And if you approach life from this standpoint, well, whatever standpoint you approach life, you're going to fail. But from this standpoint, when you fail, it does not lead to repentance. Repentance would be, oh man, I realize I'm trying to save myself. I'm trying to be God. I repent of that and say, Lord, I need you to be God. I need to follow you. It doesn't lead to that. It leads to just trying harder and doing more and failing more and failing more and failing more. Maybe we get a little bit better, but every time we fail, it starts to become this vicious cycle of shame where we start to communicate to ourselves, man... You keep messing up with that, you're never going to get better. There there is something wrong with you. You've got a problem. And of course you have a problem, and I have a problem. The problem is sin. 
God has a plan for overcoming the problem of sin. But this approach, this worldly sorrow which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death, this approach kind of says, the problem for overcoming sin is me, or the, the way to overcome sin, the plan for overcoming sin is me. It's up to me. And that's taking something that is good, God's grace, and labeling it bad and saying, that's not grace, it's not a free gift, it's all up to me and, and to my effort. Leads to death. And the word that Paul uses for death is an interesting word. It's the Greek word thanatos, which carries with it the idea of separation, separation of body and soul. But what if you also think about it, separation of head and heart. I think I can explain this in a way that's helpful. So uh, when we are born, our heads and our hearts are fully integrated. And what I mean by that is like we see something or experience something and our head can tell us whether it's good or bad. And then our heart can respond with the emotional, uh, with the appropriate emotional response, whether it's good or bad. But as we go through life, our integrated head and hearts become disintegrated. And there's a couple of ways to think about the word disintegration. Uh, if you have a car like, you know, the car that I drive that's old and more and more miles on it all the time, it starts to experience disintegration, right? Or same is true for, maybe this is why we don't celebrate birthdays the older we get. Our bodies experience disintegration. What if you thought about disintegration this way? What happens when a bomb goes off? If there's a building and a bomb goes off near that building... What happens to this, this building that is whole, that is sturdy, that is complete, that's all together, is all of a sudden no longer together? There's separation, there's disintegration. As we go through life, we experience disintegration of head and heart because there are emotional and spiritual and psychological and relational bombs going off in our lives all the time. You're a little kid and your grandparents die what do I do? How do I make sense of faith? How do I make sense of life? How do I make sense of what I'm feeling? Friends reject you or betray you or, I don't know, avoid you. You lose your job, you go through bankruptcy, you go through divorce, bombs going off, little bombs, big bombs, but they all have an emotional response connected to them. The problem starts to be when we have thoughts about our feelings. When we start to have thoughts about our feelings like, Oh man, this happened. I feel really, really sad. And my head says, don't be so sad. Why, why are you letting that bother you? Don't feel that way. Or you're feeling hurt and your head says, oh, that's not a good feeling. Let's shape our lives around never letting other people get close enough that they might hurt us. And there's this disintegration between our head and our heart. We're having thoughts about our feelings and we end up getting stuck in our head, disintegrated. Here's another way to think about it. When I'm integrated, head and heart, I can live with integrity. I can be the person God created me to be. I can be whole. Disintegration. I cannot live with integrity. I can't be the person God created me to be. So that scene where Edward and Carter are on the plane talking about faith, did you notice in the middle of it, Edward says, I'm envious of people with faith. I can't wrap my head around it. And Carter's response is, maybe your head is in the way. Disintegration, you're stuck in your head, not paying attention to what's going on in your heart. And so, no wonder, it's leading you to this place of confusion. Worldly sorrow leads to separation, leads to disintegration and death. Godly sorrow 
Paul writes, leads to repentance, leads to salvation. And it's a lot. I'm throwing a lot of information at you. This slide, I think, kind of is the summary slide. And again, I think we'll hit this several times throughout the course of the year. Worldly sorrow leads to death, separation, disintegration. Another way of thinking about it, it's all about doing. We're we're created to be loved. And a big part of the process of going through life is learning to trust God's love for us. But when we don't trust God's love for us, we go around trying to get other people to love us because we think that's what will satisfy this hunger that we have for love. And if we're doing stuff to earn love, one of the things that we might start to realize is, oh, I want to pay attention to what I think they like, what I think they want, and then I'll just become that kind of a person so that they'll like me. So that they'll like. And we create a false self, disintegration. Godly sorrow leads to salvation, integration where I'm just, instead of doing, I'm being. I'm trusting God's love for me is enough. And that frees me up to be who God created me to be. Now, again, I think sometimes we're like, it, we, we turn it into an either or when it's not an either or. We're either doing or we're being. Doing is bad, being is good. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. He's really asking, what's the flow? What's the order here? We're saved by grace through faith. Trust that God's love for us. Be who God created us to be so that we can do, is what Paul writes. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Right after he writes, we're saved by grace through faith, he says, we're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The only way to do the good things that God has planned for us is to be who God created us to be. And when we're secure in that, then we can do things like a Super Bowl food drive and really try to help people all over central Iowa. But it flows out of knowing who we are. Uh, The the verse says uh, in 1 Corinthians, for those who are being saved, like it's this process, like it's not a one and done kind of thing, but like salvation is this process. We are being saved. And so it's about heaven, it's about eternity, absolutely, but it's also about how do we live our life right now? How do we become the people that God created us to be? Salvation's a big part of that. As I get the opportunity to talk at funerals when people have died. One of the things I always like to touch on is a woman named Bronnie Ware, who is this Australian nurse. And several years ago, she wrote an article called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And she's turned it into a book. And The Five Regrets of the Dying, uh, some of them you can guess, you know, I wish I had stayed in better contact with my friends. I regret that. I, I wish I hadn't spent so much time in the office, hadn't worked so hard. They get to the end of their life, they have regret about that. Here's the number one regret of the dying, according to Bronnie Ware. She's a nurse who cares for patients in the last three to 12 weeks of their life, palliative care. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. That as people get closer and closer to their death, part of what they realize is how disintegrated their lives have been how they haven't just trusted who God created them to be as good and needed, but they've spent a lot of their life living and trying to be who other people think they should be. And at the end of their life, they regret it. Remember what Paul says? Godly sorrow leads to repentance, no regret. Worldly sorrow leads to death, 
leads to despair. As Bronnie Ware is writing about the five regrets of the dying, she stumbles into some of the wisdom of a Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard says the most common form of despair is not being who you are. Worldly sorrow, separation, disintegration leads to this creation of a false self, leads to death, leads to despair because we're not being the people God created us to be. So part of what I love about this movie, the, the bucket list, as Edward and Carter are building this relationship and uh, trying to fill out this bucket list, they're having some tough conversations and they're talking about some regrets and they're starting to live more and more all the time as the people that they really are. And they talk about it in terms of hearts being opened and salvation. Take a look. I, I don't know what most people say at these occasions because in all honesty, I, I've tried to avoid them. The simplest thing is I loved him, and I miss it. Carter and I saw the world together, which is amazing. When you think that only three months ago, we were complete strangers. I hope doesn't sound selfish of me, but the last months of his life were the best months of mine. He saved my life, and he knew it before I did. Edward Perryman Cole died in May. It was a Sunday afternoon and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It's difficult to understand the sum of a person's life. Some people would tell you it's measured by the ones left behind. Some believe it can be measured in faith. Some say by love. Other folks say life has no meaning at all. Me, I believe that you measure yourself by the people who measured themselves by you. What I can tell you for sure is that by any measure, Edward Cole lived more in his last days on earth than most people managed to wring out of a lifetime. I know that when he died, his eyes were closed and his heart was open. A big part of the message of the cross, the foolishness of the cross, is in order to truly live, we first have to die. And Jesus demonstrated that for us. When he went to the cross and then on the third day he was raised to new life. and calls us to follow him, to die to ourselves so that we can really live. And we remember that foolishness when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed that Jesus took some bread, he blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. 
drink this and remember me when you drink it. Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.